Hi, this is Ken Doherty, and you're listening to Red Devil Talk, the podcast with Jimmy Williams. Calling for it. James can only fist it. It comes for Cantona! I don't believe it! Well left by York, fed by Cole. Back to Andy Cole from Dwight York. Fantastic goal for Manchester United. Can Manchester United score? They always score. Gets with a shot! Sheringham! Name on the trophy! Beckham. It's a Sheringham! And Solskjaer has got it! Ready! Welcome to episode 48 of the Red Devil Talk podcast, a podcast where I speak to athletes, coaches, sports scientists, and sports psychologists to find out the secrets in achieving high performance. This week, I'm absolutely delighted to have another great guest on, the founder of Titan Wellness, Ireland's leading provider of workplace wellness, the me, the GAA senior football strength and conditioning coach, and a former rugby player with Munster, Leinster, and Ireland, a man who is no stranger to high performance. Is of course Niall Ronan. Niall, thanks for taking the time. Hey Jimmy, how are you doing? Thanks for having me. First of all, how are you? How have you navigated life and work through an online pandemic? Yeah, it's been tough. Um, I suppose I have two young kids, they're three and five now. So they say roll back 18 months, they're a bit younger and a bit crazier. So it was busy uh, working from home. I, I'll be honest, I didn't enjoy it. But we had to, um, I suppose, my company, we do on, mostly, was mostly on-site fitness programs. And that was all cancelled because of COVID. So we had to turn online very quickly. So we did that very quickly. And uh, we got through the pandemic. And we're still here alive, raring to go and hoping that COVID goes away sooner rather than later. But uh, all good. I got to spend some great time with my family. So that was a huge positive. I also had a bit of a crazy lifestyle before COVID. I was... I was head of SNC coach with um, me, GA. I was out late at night, gone through four, sometimes five nights a week. Uh, I was training myself three or four times a week and I was working nine to five. So it gave me a bit of a rest, you know, and uh, so, you know, all, all good things happen for a reason, you know. So uh, we got through it and hopefully we're at the end of it now. You mentioned your company there. I'm going to move to that later on. If that's okay. I'm actually looking forward to asking you about that. Um, what kind of things did you do? To keep yourself sane throughout the lockdown, did you watch that in good Netflix? Uh, I got out of the house. That's what I did. Um, I like I I would have run after a Gaelic football or rugby ball for hours on end throughout my life, but I actually never went for a run ever yeah. or went for a walk. Like that didn't even enter my mind. Uh, but I suppose when you're locked away for so long, uh, I would have ran once or twice a week. I get started running and. Um, and I lost weight, which was great, um, and it's great for the mind. I wasn't going fast or going far, but I was getting out there, and uh, I'd go for a walk during my lunch break or um, in the mornings and uh, just put on a podcast and get out, and that was one thing that really something I never did before, so that's good coping mechanism, and I suppose I got to spend lots of time with my family, so you know, that's always positive to connect with them if you're not around the place and you have a busy lifestyle, so you know, it wasn't too bad. What's your favorite podcast? Any recommendations for our listeners? I listened to your one with Gary Neville last night. It was very good. Well done. Oh, yeah. He's very passionate. Um, I, I obviously a big United fan, so yeah. uh, I've I've got a. I think he's very good on uh, social media and on, on Sky. So I listened to that. I listened to the High Performance podcast. Um, I listened to a lot of kind of uh, 
uh, psychology podcasts and something has to be a little bit different you know i don't want to be listening to the same kind of topic over and over again to be honest with you so anything that's kind of different i'd, I'd listen to you know i want to ask you about growing up in mead what was life like what kind of a young person were you growing up um i think i was shy you know my parents would have said i was shy when i was about, about 10 11 years of age but uh sport really you know it helped me get out of my shell and um, i I was lucky enough to play for me under 14s. And I always remember that I had to kind of grow a set of balls and get out there and go training and, you know, try and communicate with my teammates and show them what I've got, you know. And that was probably the first time in my life going, geez, I'm, I'm not bad at Gaelic football. So um, I'll give that a go. And uh, it gave me confidence as a person. I suppose when you're working in a, a team environment like that at a young age, it gives you confidence. So I have good family in the background as well. Uh, my parents, my mother's from Offaly, my father's from County Loud, I'm from County Mead, somewhere in the middle there. And they always supported me and looked after me, never put any pressure on me, uh, you know, in my sporting decisions or in life, really. They just were there to support me. So that kind of guides you as a person. Same with my sisters as well. So my childhood was great. I followed Mead GEA growing up my whole life. That was my dream to try and play for Mead GEA, getting football. Uh, if people outside of uh, Ireland don't understand what that is, but uh, Mead were the Man United of uh, Gaelic football uh, back in the day, and we're trying to get them back now, but we're a little bit behind. But uh, that was my dream, and I was following them, and um, you know, so my childhood was Gaelic football, but a little bit of rugby thrown on top. Did you ever try your hand at hurling? Is there as much of hurling seen oh. up in Mead? Oh, no, there's, well, there was a bit, but uh, not where I'm from. My club amalgamated with another club for hurling, so it'd be kind of, I wouldn't be, I never played, but I do appreciate the sport because it's phenomenal. In terms of sport growing up, what kind of people inspired you? Uh, many, many different people. Like uh, my younger years, uh, my dad was my coach from under 14 to 16 to minor, and we, we were very successful. We won, that's where I think I got, we might talk about high performance later on, but you have to win games to, to understand what high performance is like so you have to be a winner and experience winning so from a young age we we won under 14 under 16s and we lost the finals but we we're always one of the top teams and my father played a huge part in that uh, in my rugby career there was local people like mel barry and a guy called um jerry talent who were local people who grabbed me out of bed to get me to go to rugby training because i, I wanted to just play gaelic football um, and you know without their support and maybe I wouldn't have achieved my rugby career that you know so in the early stages they were the people but throughout my rugby career there was so many people that helped me along the way You mentioned rugby there obviously you grew up playing Gaelic football you represented Mead uh, GA was your passion you know you've mentioned that you then start playing rugby with Boyne but what I want to know is had you dabbled in rugby before that did you have any inkling that you could excel at this or was it a case of Asher I'll try something new Um. well Rugby, when I was 14 years of age, wasn't like a professional sport, you know, so it was it was evolving into professional sport. So um, to answer with you, when I was nearly 17, I didn't even know what Leinster, Munster or Connacht or Ulster was. Like, really, I um, when, I, when I got a little bit older, I understood what it was. So um, I would have trained maybe one once a week. Sometimes I just played games when I from the age of 10. So if it didn't get in the way of uh, getting football, I would have went to rugby. So I did play throughout my childhood, but the number one sport seven days a week was getting football. Um, and then where I live, I live in a place called Drogheda. Uh, it's between Mead and Loud. And there was two rugby teams within that um, kind of parish area. And they amalgamated when I was 14. 
and we were two of the two best teams in Leinster club level. We weren't private schools and they were clubs, so we were kind of lower class citizens back then. But we we got to all Ireland finals and we won one and we lost a couple of quarterfinals. So we were really a successful team. And that's where I opened my eyes to to rugby uh, and professionalism of rugby. And then we got noticed and I got selected for Leinster youth team. And then we were getting nice kit, professional kit, really good coaches with positive language. And I was like, oh, this is very... Uh, Profession. I want. To, I like to give this a go, and that's how my rugby journey started. Really, when I got picked for the Leinster Youths when I was uh, seventeen. Brilliant. Did you find your background in GA helped you at all? Obviously, GA's, you know, it's rapid pace, it's multi-directional, have to be agile. Did you find that helped you playing rugby? Yeah, I, to be honest with you, if I didn't play any football, I wouldn't have got to where I got in rugby. And the guy feels like naturally, I'm not a big person. Like. Um, when I was playing rugby, I think it was about 100 and 101 kgs. Now I'm 93, maybe, um, depending if I was out the weekend or not. Um, but I'm naturally not a big, big man. You know, I'm more of athletic kind of. And uh, so my evasion skills, my handling was was good and probably got to me to a certain level. But then I had to catch up then in terms of my strength and conditioning. So Gaelic football uh, is unreal for all sports, I think, because it's a great crossover and it gives you good aerobic conditioning, anaerobic, good agility, good skills, good peripheral vision. So um, I'd highly recommend to do both if you're young, you know, if you play multiple sports up until you're 18, uh, do as much as you can. So you're then called up to Irish under-19 team. I'd imagine at some point, you know, you have a decision to make. I'm guessing you did rugby and Gaelic together up to a point. At what point do you think you might have to start sacrificing the, the GAA? Till you get a contract in the post and you have to decide. <laughs> That's what happened. Um, I After the under-21 World Cup, um, I got offered a contract by Connacht. Um, and Connacht are very good now they've definitely improved but back then they were kind of they weren't as good and I considered a full-time contract with them because uh, um, one of the coaches was the Irish 21s team uh, and I had to make a call on it to sign and give up Gaelic football because in your contract you can't play other sports um, but then in the meantime Leinster actually offered me a development contract which was a lower contract and obviously Brian O'Driscoll, Dennis Hickey, Gordon Arcee, all these guys playing. Um, and I made the call to you know go more local to Dublin, to Leinster, who were one of the better teams in the country. And when I, once I signed the contract, I had to give up Gaelic football at the age of 19, which was tough because uh, all my mates played. And um, I was going to games and I didn't enjoy going to the games because I wanted to be playing in the middle of it. But uh, it, was, it was a career decision, really, because... Academically, I wasn't really motivated in school, if I'm being honest, and I wanted to play sport for my job, whatever that may be, getting football or rugby, and I got the opportunity, and thankfully it worked out so far. You spent four years with Leinster, four head coaches in four seasons. How did that impact your own progress, the progress of the team? What, what is it like for you know, players when there's consistently a change of management? Yeah, it's difficult. Um, I suppose for the internationals, it's probably like they're going to play, you know, because they're top players in the in the country and they have a huge amount of experience. But for the guys, I suppose, who are less experienced or younger players, um, or kind of mid 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 kind of level players, um, it is tough. It is tough. Like I said earlier on, I came from youth rugby. Now that's totally changed now. But when I was playing, it was kind of you were looked upon differently compared to schools level and that's evolved now it's way better now but I suppose I felt maybe it was a chip on my shoulder but 
from my experiences, I felt like I, I like I need to excel as much as I can to, to get even looked at. But when you have a new coach every four years, the continuity and the relationship you build up with a coach is gone if, if they're gone. So you have to start from scratch. So I think it's it was difficult for me. Um, and I suppose um, like my first year, I, I got young player of the year with Leinster. Uh, worked with Gary Ella and uh, Willie Anderson, who's a great coach, helped me an awful lot. But they were just gone then. And then uh, obviously other players came in who were, if I'm honest, were better than me at the time. Um, and they got in ahead of me. And then a new, another coach left. And then you're starting again with another coach. So it is difficult. It is difficult. Mentally, it's difficult for continuity for your form because it, like one coach might play every week and then you don't play then. Uh, you might play one in every five games or you get 10 minutes here and there. So how to fulfill your full potential, it's very difficult to do that. Were you frustrated with your time uh, with Leinster? Um, it was a great learning curve. I really enjoyed the, like, the experience and the opportunity. Like playing with some top class players uh, at the age of 20, 21. Uh, Brian O'Driscoll, the best player to ever I ever played with and against in my career. I played with some great players. So I learned an awful lot. But as I said earlier, my fourth year with Leinster, I was definitely improving, but I wasn't at the level. It took me till maybe two and a half years into my Munster um, career uh, to really get to the level I had to get to. So was I frustrated? No, uh, because I knew that I was in rankings I was in. I wasn't going to be at the level of what I needed to be. Plus, I, nearly I was nearly going to retire from rugby. And um, when my fourth year, my last contract with Leinster was up because um, I was offered a few contracts from Connacht and Ulster the year before and I turned them down. So two years later, when I was looking for a contract, they were gone. So I considered giving up uh, rugby um, at the age of 24. And luckily enough, Declan Kidney, who is now the London Irish coach, um, he was with Leinster for one of the coaches and he left and he reached out to me. And luckily enough, he watched me in the game. I played well enough. And then all of a sudden I wasn't retiring from rugby. Uh, I was going to play for one of the, the best teams in world rugby. And I spent seven years down there and it was incredible. You mentioned Declan Kidney there. You mentioned that this was at a time when you were considering retirement. How big a factor was Declan Kidney in the decision to go to Munster? Huge. Um, like there's many things that Declan would have did to help my life. Um, like I suppose I, as I said, I nearly retired from the game young. Uh, I, I obviously had more to give, and he gave me the opportunity to sign for, for me like in in football, kind of if you compare it to football, it's like signing for Man United when because Munster were winning European Cups. My first year we won a European Cup, to play against the All Blacks. I won um, Pro 12. I won medals and trophies there. So that opportunity was given by Declan to me. So. I really appreciate that and also he got me to go back to college like uh, Declan is a teacher by trade and he got me to go back and complete my degree in strength and conditioning and I went to the counseling and psychotherapy courses and that was due to him he was quite kindly asking but basically telling me you need to do something outside of rugby uh, and he pushed me to do that uh, and he also gave me all my my wonderful four Irish caps but uh, he gave them to me and I really appreciate that uh, and he was a huge part in playing in, in all the um, uh, achievements that I had in my rugby career. You mentioned something, in my opinion, important there, having something outside of rugby. I think it's such a key point, and I'm going to come back to that in a minute. What would you say is Declan Kidney's biggest strength as a as a leader of a group? He gets he gets people to work together. 
that's his biggest strength, I think. You know, he's always in communication with you um, as a as coach, manager, mentor. He's always, he doesn't, like, you'll know where you're at, good or bad. Um, and I think that's the good thing. I suppose Axel Foley was the exact same when he was coaching me. He was my teammate when I was with Munster. And um, he'd always give you constructive feedback. And that's all you need. I think if you get that honesty from a coach or manager, I think you'll do whatever, you'll, you'll work for that person, you know. In my opinion, and this is just an opinion, and feel free to disagree, but the high performers are the individuals who actively seek constructive feedback. Oh, yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. I'd like to know where I stand. And if you're in, in unknown territory, how can you know where you're going? You know, so I always like to have a plan or a vision. And if I know where I'm going, if I'm going in the right direction, happy days. If not, then I need to understand where do I need to go. So I, I, I totally agree with that. Yeah, I mean, even if I was doing a college an exam, you know, I'd, I'd ask for feedback, even as uncomfortable as it is, because I could tell it, well, you know, this was crap, but. Yeah. I think it's the only way you improve it. Communication is key to life in a relationship to how you speak to your kids, how to communicate with people in the office I work here with. Uh, it's, if you communicate and it's, you open up the door to, to whatever direction you want to go, but if you close it, it's very hard to, you, can, you, you get distant then, you know, and you can get to where you want to get. So it's the key to, to life communication is, um, and my mother would have always said that. Jumping back to Monster. As you mentioned, you were joining at that time one of the best teams in the world, arguably. Uh, were you excited? Were you daunted by that? Yeah, all, all of that in one. <laughs> Whatever you said there, I totally agree. Um, oh, yeah, it was like, like to answer, we played a game against Leinster, and it was, I think it was nearly in my second year. And I looked around, and the Apollo column on my left, you had Dennis Leamy, Rodgers to my right, and then we're playing against Leinster, Brian O'Driscoll, Felipe Contepomi. And I literally went, oh my God, like, this is it. Like, I've, in my head, I've, I've got to the top, like, but to be in that environment and then people, the leaders, and what you learned off them was incredible. I was scared, but I suppose this fear kind of made me train harder and want, made me stay there. Um, and the philosophy and the Munster culture is like, if it's a family bond, it's there for life. So if you have to buy into it or you're, or you're gone, and you know, my it suited my personality. The minute I got down there, it was people made me feel welcome and I loved every bit of it. And to be honest with you, I don't miss playing rugby, but I miss playing for Munster. Yeah. Uh, and if you don't know what that means, it means like the, the, what it stands for and the culture that you're in. Because when you leave, you, it's very hard to get it back, you know, where people are all in the same wavelength, not just the players, backroom staff, supporters, and it's a united kind of um organization. And uh, obviously, great memories, great memories. Putting sport to the side for one minute, in terms of what you learned in these environments, what kind of things did you learn from the environment uh, at Munster that you could bring forward into your own life? Uh, loads, loads of different things. I suppose the main thing that stood out for me was, was the hard work that the players did. And it was not just more weights or more fitness. Uh, the physical part was taken care of, but the analysis and... Um, you know, like the opposition analysis of what they're doing, then analyzing yourself and then getting good constructive feedback from your coach and staff in the different areas, communicating together. Um, and I suppose I, I've now, I was never a leader in the Munster dressing room. I didn't have to be <laughs> so many leaders there. So my jo job was to do my job and be a leader on the field and communicate in terms of defensively mainly. Um, and I like getting the ball, so I'd always be, you know, communicating to get the ball. But, um, 
like leadership is it's it's a learned skill i think and um, some people have the presence but uh, i would in quiet in the dressing room so i i learned that in terms of my business being a leader within my business and i retired from rugby and i went back and played Gaelic football and i had to be the leader in the football team and um, because there wasn't many in the group and you know we actually did success we were successful when i went back but i had i was coming out of my comfort zone but i learned that from being in the group of people who were leaders and how they lead, they led and um, the likes of paul O'Connell and roger and all these guys they got to know you as a person number one number two they they let you know what they you need to do to be a part of the team no matter what team that is they help you to do it and then they worked with you to do it so like you know they're they're really uh, positive things that I learned in terms of uh, how I can bring it to my everyday life now. Like in terms of I train four times a week, I communicate well, I try and lead people, I try to you know understand people, take feedback myself. And if you can put that into your life, never mind sport, I think it's it's a good thing. You mentioned a great point there. I think it's so important uh, in my line of work getting to know the person, yeah. regardless of what they've achieved in the sport or. What playing playing standard they're at getting to know the person behind the athlete i think is absolutely crucial oh yeah absolutely you get the best out of people when you get to know them you know you don't have to be their best friend but you need to understand who they are where they're from what the personality is like and then you can work with them you know and uh, like i've all my coaching badges in rugby and i'm strength conditioning coach with me so you gotta get to you know be their friend first and then you can work with them but if you're if you stonewall them and be this drill sergeant they won't, they won't give you anything back, you know, or where you want to get them to, you know. You mentioned your retirement a moment ago, so I'll stick with that for a minute. Obviously, you had to retire from a knee injury. Can you remember the day you got that news? How much of the blow was that to you? Yeah, it was literally, I went training on the Thursday. I was up in the line out. I fell awkwardly in the line out, and I never played rugby again. Simple as that. Um, whatever way I landed, I, I did really bad cartilage in my right knee, and then, um, I tried rehab, it didn't work, got surgery, and the surgeon said, game over. And it felt, to be honest with you, it felt like it. Um, like I, I never ran the same before or after it. And I did go back and play Gaelic football, but I, I, just, I just train on Tuesday, and I take Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday off, and then play a match, you know. Um, and I do yoga and ice baths and anything possible to make my knee feel better. But it was, it was literally over in a flash, like when training, and then I never played rugby again. And it was at the early stage of the season when uh, I knew I was retiring. So it was tough to be going training and knowing that you're gone in three or four months' time, that your your career is over. So there's a lot of kind of sitting on your own and being on your own uh, as a player because you're not, you're, you go, go to meetings and stuff like that, go to games, but you know yourself, it's not the same. Even before your retirement, if I'm correct, you missed a full season monster due to injury as well. Yeah, I tore my ACL on the other leg. Um, um, just when David Wallace retired the year before, which was unfortunate for me because I was behind David Wallace for my uh, first three or four years of my monster career and um, fantastic player, great guy. Um, but we helped each other and my, it was hopefully my turn. And I started all the Hiding Cup games and, and the fifth game or sixth game of that group, I think the fifth game in the group stage, tore my ACL and I was out for eight months. So I suppose it's the luck of the draw really, isn't it, sport? So... Uh, that was another long, long injury, but um, I got back, you know, so it wasn't too bad. Just for our listeners, can you chat to me a little bit 
about the psychological impact or the psychological challenge that an injury can pose? Yeah, I think I have lots of injuries playing rugby, but the long-term one, like an ACL, where it's 8 to 12 months, it's a tough one to, to take, really, because you're just wiping out 12 months of your sporting career. And if you're professional, then it's even tougher, you know? And it could affect your contract as well and your, your job, you know? So you have to, all them factors do play a part, you know? So um, the one bit of advice uh, would be to accept that you're injured and accept, right, okay, it's going to take 10 months to get back. Well, that's going to be eight months in my head, you know? So you have to tackle the, the issue and listen to your physios. But there is dark days. There's days where it's sore. Your injury could be sore and it's actually giving you stress because of the pain. Uh, there's no outcome at the end of the weekend, which I always found it very hard where you train Monday to Friday like a professional athlete and then give the weekends off. So it doesn't what my training for. And then that thought process kicks into your head. But um, I think if you can accept that you're injured and go, right, um, as you said earlier on, like do some outside of rugby, like college or uh, do a job, go coaching, you know, um, go for weekends away. I think that would definitely help um, an athlete to distract you from uh, the injury and not playing the sport. You know? I've spoken to a number of uh, GA players. They've said that when they're injured, they're literally just cast aside. They're forgotten about. It's like just such a smack in the face because the manager, if you can't play, does, does, does want to know you. Do you think you, did you get enough support or did you feel isolated? No, never felt isolated. Uh, not at all. Like I was working with IRUPA, first of all, which would be the Irish Rugby Players Association as a kind of representative for the, the Munster players. So I had that distracted me and I was working with players and they were working with me and my life after rugby. So a huge support from them, coaching staff, 100%. Everyone, like, as I said, Munster's a family, like, uh, they don't leave you out and even players and coaches, you're all, always in touch. But at the end of the day, you're injured. You're not useful to them, like, really. And again, if you understand that and kind of get on with that and get yourself ready to get back for when you are ready to play, then you're in the mix but some people don't understand that and uh, maybe when you get a bit older and you've got injuries it's easier to accept but um you have to just have a goal to go right i'm going to get back at this point and you know um but it is important that people around you do support you because if you don't then it's a lot harder than that you know you mentioned college and having qualifications earlier i'm a big believer that athletes should have a plan b you know having a backup because the harsh reality of a life in sport as you've mentioned it your career is taken away from you in a flash. Yeah. You can be released. You can be get an injury. It's gone in a second. So I think not exploring other aspects of life away from sport or exploring other aspects of who you are, you know, it's, it can be a, potentially an issue. You went back and had your own qualifications. How much did, did that backup help you in terms of the transition out of player to non-player? Yeah, I think um, I, it helped me an awful lot rugby you don't make that much money, you know. You should be paid more than the soccer players, really. But um, yeah, I, I had a plan. Some like I suppose the the RFU are very proactive uh, on helping players to plan post rugby, and that's even getting better year by year. And there's great great work done. Marcus Horn be uh, one that works that I work closely with and I talk to on an ongoing basis that helps. But if you have a plan, it's like everything. If you have a plan or a vision, you'll get there. And when I retired, I, I hoped I had two or three more years left. But my plan was put into place um, when I retired because my I was qualified with my degree in strength and conditioning literally 
at the end of that season when I got injured. So I was qualified to open up a gym. It was my plan. And I did all my coaching badges with the RFU up to stage four to coach a rugby team. So that was a choice that I th thought I made where I go into something that I know, I understand, I've experienced in it. Um, and that plan went into place fairly quickly. Three months after I retired from rugby, I was had my own strength and, uh, strength and conditioning gym. We are doing uh, rehab, personal training, and then I coached my local rugby team. So that plan came into place, but that was four years of planning because I was getting my qualifications, speaking about what I'm going to do, setting up a LinkedIn, LinkedIn page, um, all those little small things that you think about, but I had to use them fairly quickly because I was, I'd no direct debit coming into my bank account anymore, uh, which I did for 10 years. Now I've no job. So planning is key in life and in business. So uh, thankfully enough, I had a plan in place. Uh, we spoke about your company uh, in the intro. I want to come back to that. I'm really interested in that. Your wellness company, Titan Wellness. First of all, I love the name. I think it's very powerful, very catchy. Tell me about that. When did that idea come into your head? How did you go about um, setting that in motion? Yeah, it kind of fell into it. At some businesses, you kind of the opportunity arises. Um, so I was when I was retired, I was doing some talks on physical well-being and high performance, and you know, you know, being active. And I was going into companies, and the to be honest, there was no really support from the companies. But I don't think that was the company's fault. There was a lack of education in there, and. Um, some companies would have um, like a gym there but it was never being used and I was always going like they need education here they need an expert or experts to come in and support them in the different areas of well-being from mental health sleep nutrition physical well-being even mindfulness now is huge at the moment and so uh, I was doing talks with my business partner now as well uh, at the same time because he had a gym as well and we kind of we shared our our kind of our, our talks together and we just came together to say, let's go in and set up a company that we can um, support um, employees with their well-being. Um, and I suppose it's going to benefit the employer as well in terms of if, if you're happy, you're going to be more productive at work. You're going to have lack of absenteeism. Uh, you can recruit people if you have an on-site gym, for example, all that sort of stuff. So that's what we do now. We have programs in um, all the different areas of well-being. We, we manage corporate fitness gyms as well. So we, inst we install them with our partners, Black Box, another Irish company. And then we manage the, uh, the gym on-site. Um, and it's going so far so good. The pandemic gave it a little bit of a hit, but I suppose it hit the whole world. And um, I'm enjoying it. And I enjoy doing something that... I can make an impact in people's lives, you know. I think establishing that culture of wellness and well-being, you know, has to be top down from the the organization really has to buy into it. But what I want to know is, have you encountered organizations or individuals that were resistant to what you were uh, the messages you're trying to get across and how did you navigate that resistance? Um oh yeah, uh, people don't like change. And <laughs> you know, it's it's human nature that, you know, change habits takes time, you know. So um yeah, there's there's lots of it's well it's it's um long term planning it goes back to planning again. So you have to you can't just do one awareness talk on mental health and then that's it. You need to have ongoing support and keep planting the seed uh, to for to, for behavior change. I think you know and some of our programs we do we do reporting and um, we do like over four weeks we do a program. Adam doing a one off we do a four week program. And then that's where you might get change the habits over time. So there's definitely that. It's difficult to change. 
you're doing something over and over again for 10 years and it's bad for you to change that it takes time so again it's the education piece it's giving them the understanding and then the opportunity to practice fitness classes or you know mindfulness or whatever to make an impact in their life but uh, you would get um obstacles in the way but i suppose that happens in life doesn't it yeah i'm gonna put you on the spot now uh what would you say is your biggest strength uh, my biggest strength I'm, I'm a fairly open person um I like to think i'm positive and just you know trying to get to know people and show empathy to people i think my mother would be a big uh kind of believer in that and um, you know, my parents are very close tough times when I was younger and they both went to counselling and stuff so they're really good with communication and feedback and giving people advice so maybe I took up some of their skills uh, when I was younger and um, I'll t- like I'll talk to anyone you know that's the type of person I am so I think that's strength that I think is good and um, uh, that works for me anyway. To flip the idea of strengths can you tell me about a time where maybe you didn't succeed either in sport or business, maybe a decision that you got wrong or performance that you weren't particularly proud of. Can you tell me what sometime you didn't succeed and how you managed it? Yeah, um, there was many of them. There's small kind of ones where, you know, you didn't take your opportunity. Um, one doesn't really stand out the most, but um, I suppose maybe I can tell you what I did to try and counteract that. Like, you know, like, it'd be like in sport, there was so many things that like you know I, I regret maybe I should have did this or I should have did that but it was a learning curve you know so I'm no one's perfect I'm not saying I'm perfect and I've no weaknesses at all I've lots of weaknesses but um I think life is about learning Um, there was like one time at work there was just, like I've never been in the co- corporate world before as a rugby player and you're going into a different environment and like it is stressful you know there's you know there's contracts going here and there so like sometimes I felt out my depth because I didn't know, I didn't understand, uh, I didn't know how it worked. Um, you have to be politically correct, and you have to do do it by the by the book, you know. But I that was where I I felt kind of that I was out of my depth. I need to learn here quickly to get onto my toes and do it the way they do it, you know. And now I'm comfortable doing it, and I'm in that environment. I'm used to it now. But I did at the early stages going into the corporate environment. Uh, it was kind of a little bit going. Okay, I need to up my game here. You know, and that's where I did feel a weakness. But again, it makes you stronger. You try and learn how to, to deal with it. And I speak to people that give me advice that are in business maybe 10, 15 years that help me kind of mentor me. Um, and that definitely helps me, you know. So if you think you know it all, you're in trouble. So get advice. <laughs> I want to move on to the idea of performance, which is my real interest for anyone who listens to the podcast will know that fascinated by all aspects of performance the highs the lows of career in sport how much emphasis did you put on mental preparation throughout your sporting career um that's a good question i never really worked um one-on-one with uh, psychologists where some of my teammates did on an ongoing basis now collectively as a group i really believed in whatever was said and we had to work together as a team because you don't win unless you don't have a team environment and you have that connection and honesty and you know hard work but I never really worked with a psychologist but I remember when I was about 19 I was in the Irish Academy it's it's now the Leinster Academy and Munster Academy and it was like a national academy and we were doing visualization in a really cold wooden floor in Clongos Wood College and and we were learning what visualization is in terms of our mental preparation for our, our individual roles and our collective roles as a team 
and what you want to achieve on the field. So for me, it was getting into the break then, trying to rob the ball or catch a pass or making a line break. And that stuck with me for my whole career. And I'd literally, I'd, so my step-by-step -step guide was visualization of my roles um, you know, and mentally preparing that way of what I have to do. And then I'm a, I'd be a visual learner. So I'd look at that footage then on the desktop, on the software, of analyze myself and the opposition. And then I talk to the coaches. So that was my mental preparations in terms of like, right, I'll do my visualization. Uh, I wouldn't do it all in that order. It depends what was going on that week, but I'd tick them all off. And then come Saturday when the game comes around, I'd, I'd know, right, this is what I'm going to do. This is what the coaches want me to do. And then I can I, I can visually see where I have to be in my position uh, or where the opportunities are. And I did a lot of work on that on my own. I didn't talk about it to anyone. I didn't, you know, um, like, like it was just a kind of a mental prep that worked for me. And uh, it definitely helped me from where I came from to where I got. I was happy enough how it worked. So you were visualizing certain plays, certain movements, uh, how the game would unfold. Yeah, exactly. So for an open side flanker number seven in rugby, like say for a scrum or a line, your job is to get to the first breakdown. So an attack with your team, you need to secure the ball or in defence, you need to try and contest to get the ball back. So my running lines and the angles I had to get in, I, I'd have to like learn them. And if I could visually see them in my head or how I could cheat to get there quicker, um, I would do that and it, it works. It works, you know, and I love getting the ball when I played sport as well. If you play sport, you need possession of the ball. That's what Man United lack at the moment. You don't have possession. Uh, I don't know what they're doing at the moment, but when you have the ball, it, everyone loves having the ball in any sport. And uh, I'd always visualize scenarios where it's 2v1 or 3v2 or how I would, you know, how I would ex execute it. Can I ask you, did you get nervous before games? Yeah, I did. Um, I think you're a lawyer if you if you're not if you don't get nervous before games, and um, maybe that's just me. But I think nerves is a good thing. It means you're focused. It means you're ready for what you're going into, and you understand that it's a big game. And um, now I was never nervous that I didn't have the work done. Uh, I was nervous sometimes to come back from injury when I wasn't as fit as I as I thought I would be. And um, I also remember my first Heineken Cup games as a home and away against Claremont, and. I was nervous because I never played at that level before. And I was, uh, <laughs> I was he is cursing this podcast. I, yeah. I was, I was tired, um, but nicely. Um, and I, I'd never seen it like it before. Um, you know, and I remember looking at the clock in the second game, and there was 18 minutes left in the clock, and all the subs were on. And I was like, how am I going to play for another 18 minutes? So I was nervous about the level of intensity because I haven't played that before. But anyway, it worked out and I got through it. But I'd be nervous about that and I would be nervous before games, but I think you need to turn that into a positive and not a negative because I, I've played with lads, nerves got the better of them, you know, but um, once the, the whistle's blown, the nerves go away anyway. Do you think the visualisation helped calm the nerves, having a sense of familiarity about the game before you've even gone to the pitch? Yeah, 100%. You're, you're basically, and going back to planning again, you're planning what's going to happen in the scenarios. So if you have that in your head and understand it and I suppose the more games you play at a higher level that gets easier but uh, 100% it gives you that confidence to go on, right okay I know I, I went through this mentally physically at training and in game so I'm ready now so 100% like the mind is very important in sports if you don't focus on that you're, you won't reach high performance I don't think 
you mentioned high performance. The big question on this podcast, uh, in your opinion, Niall, what are some of the key factors that are absolutely crucial in achieving high performance, speed in sport, business, life? Yeah, I You mentioned first, one, obviously, planning. You mentioned... Yeah, well, planning is vision the same as planning. <laughs> you always have to plan to hit your vision, but you have to have a vision to before you can reach high performance, I think. You know, there's stepping stones to high performance, but you have to have, where am I going to? Like, so when I went to Munster, I needed to, like, try and get David Wallace's position, you know? Now, that was sometimes unrealistic, but the next best thing for me was to get on the bench. And sometimes they didn't play with seven on the bench. It was kind of a specialised position. But my goal, if I can play well enough, they'll have to put me on the bench. Or if he gets injured, I'm in. And so that was my vision when I went down to Munster. Uh, I was realistic in my approach because David Wallace was a fantastic player. So that was number one. And then you got to work hard. So I was, when I went signed for Munster, I was physically a little bit off the pace. Uh, they were at another level of intensity. So I needed to match that. So you got your physical um, aspect, tick that off. Then your mental prep. Then you got to know your teammates uh, and work together with them, getting constructive feedback um and then playing you know and in sports i suppose that's sporting context but i think if you break them all down physical mental holistic communication social aspect and that's how you reach high performance because it's very hard to reach high performance on your own you need people to help you so i suppose the two tips i give is have a vision and then do it with your team you know and you got to work hard you know (laughs) you won't make high performance if you don't work hard brilliant of course, this is a United podcast, so you'll conclude with United. You're a big United fan. Where did this interest in United come about? Um, I said earlier on, my mother is from County Offaly, and um, my uncle was a diehard United fan, and he still is. And um, we, well, I used to go there for my summer holidays, and I could stay up late to watch the United games. And um, I... I, I just I was addicted to it at a young age. I had every Man United video, jersey, you name it. I loved it. But he brought me to Old Trafford when I was about 11. And um, I think Michael was playing Beckham, Carol Proborski, Skulls, Keane. And uh, I was Old Trafford. I was just blown away by it. I remember Schmeichel kicking the ball so high, I couldn't actually, I thought he kicked it out of the stadium because I couldn't see it. It was that small. Um, so I really enjoyed um, you know that experience. And that was where it kicked on. And um, I, ever since I've been a diehard fan, and I suppose COVID actually accelerated my love for Man United because every weekend the outcome was watching United play, you know, or the signing this new guy or Ronaldo comes, and uh, I fell back in love with United even more because uh, it was like I'm addicted to it. I'd be watching, listening to your podcast, I'd be looking at um, what's happening, who they're going to si- sign, or whatever. So um, I love United now, but we're not playing well at the moment, unfortunately. I was like a child when they announced Ronaldo was coming back because yeah. I remember he was going to City on Sky Sports and my phone actually died. So for three yeah. hours, I knew nothing. And I turned my phone back on and I was like, Ronaldo's going tonight. And I swear to yeah. God, I was like a child. Oh, unbelievable. I, I was the same. Like, um, we, I booked flights to our, and I bought tickets for the Everton game three days after um, you know, it's, uh, signed Ronaldo. You know, I just I said I have to go, I have to go and see him live. Like, so we went over to that game. There was a bit of a dead rubber, and United were shocking. But um, it was great to see him live, and he was on the bench that day as well, which didn't need to help either. <laughs> you know, um, who were your favourite players growing up? Cantona, Cantona. We stand out one. He was just, he just had this presence, and he's like, "Give me the ball, I'll make it happen." And uh, 
you know, I love that he just he, he just had this authority that, that he could change the game and he did. And I just love that kind of aura he had. And I tried to copy it in rugby and Gaelic football and I wasn't as good as him, but that was that kind of confidence of when you have the ball, you know, uh, you know, take it on and take risks, you know, and that's what uh Cantona was obviously I love Skulls and Keane was a fantastic player, but um Cantona just always sticks in the back of my mind. We were blessed for 20 years with some great teams. Obviously, there was the 94 double team, the treble team, the 2008 team. What was your favourite team growing up? I think when they won the year, they won the treble. You know, that was just like, I remember I was doing my leaving cert when they won the Champions League and uh, Ole and Sheringham scored them goals the last play of the game. And I, I jumped up and I smashed the chandelier in my, in my sitting room. And that, 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 them memories of my childhood were like, I want them back quickly, but that was standout year. Like you know, how <clears throat> they did the travel that year, and um, I, that would one be sticking my mind the most. I want them back too. Unfortunately, they're shocking at the moment. How far away or close do you think they are to being where they want to be? I, I, I have this theory. Like Munster, kind of in the same predicament at the moment. Like. Man United and Munster are like iconic teams, right? They're historically successful teams with great players. Um, I just don't think Man United have players that they used to have. And social media drives it so big that, oh, you know, you need to win because it's Man United. But it, the world doesn't work like that. <laughs> players, um, I suppose, aren't good enough. At the moment, you've got our wing-backs who Luke Shaw's out of form, Mambazaka, how good is he? Harry Maguire is out of form. Our midfielders are squad players and other teams. Um, so I, I don't think we're actually that good, you know. Uh, as hard as it is to say that, but we're not good enough to win. Um, so hopefully Ran, uh, Ralph can help help out that and uh, get the form back and the confidence back. And I suppose half the team want to leave as well. Uh, their squad players want to leave as well. So it's a tough environment to be in as well as a United player. I think there's I think there's so many average players there at the moment you mentioned yeah. Bambasaka. I think he's average. Yeah. I think Maguire is average. I think I think Maguire being captain of United is not right. I think I actually think he instills confidence in the opposition and the yeah. opposition fans. I actually think it gives him a lift seeing Maguire yeah. there. Because yeah. at Leicester, you know he, sorry, one. I'd say his speed lets him down, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean at Leicester he's camped on the edge of his own box. He can head the yeah. balls away all day long. At United, he has to be on the ball. He's on the half line and he's caught every time. Yeah, yeah. Now, speed wins in sport. Like, you need speed and he, he's kind of in doubt because of his speed and he if, um, messes up the rest of the system. But my mates now, <laughs> I wrecked their head. I, Fred, for me, is the worst midfielder I've ever seen live. And um, over the last few years, United, I just think he's, I call him Fred, unforced errors. Sorry, Fred. Now, but um, he just makes too many mistakes, and he can't pass forward. And he's he's actually when you see him live, he's actually not that big. He's really small, and he's not fast. And he just United's midfield. That's where you create opportunities by your midfield by dominating possession of the ball. And we don't have the players to do that. So I, I, I we're not, it's not going to get fixed very quickly with them players, you know. What do you make of Pogba? Apparently being offered five hundred grand a week to stay. Yeah, to stay. Um, well, if he was playing for Munster, he'd be gone long ago. That's the way I look at it, you know. Um, I suppose he is a talent, but he hasn't proven himself, and he's there for what, four seasons now. Mm. Um, he hasn't proven himself. Um, and 
kind of manage to get that out of him. I'm not sure. Um, so I would get rid of him. And like Ralph Randwick has a huge amount of experience of bringing young players in that a lot of energy. And uh, I'd be sticking to that philosophy. I, I would personally get rid of Pogba. I think he's a player who will do it for you when you're four and up. He'll do his little step overs, his feints, his tricks. But when you're two and alone and you need someone to step up, he is nowhere to be seen. No, he's he's a bit of a Mayfainer, isn't he? I think so, he, yeah. Yeah, he's talented, but I think like, if you look at Liverpool and City, they don't have any of them players. Chelsea don't, you know. It's uh, They've top managers as well, which that helps too, you know. But um, I think, you know, I need to go back to, their, to get people who, who care, who want to be there and, you know, get functional players that are good and talented young players and just play them. And it's not going to happen overnight, but in a few years with the right people in charge, I think we get back. Please God, it's sooner rather than later. It was hard to watch. <laughs> Final question, because I'm conscious of time now. We're 10 minutes over. Um, who would you like to see come in as the next full-time manager? Um, like, I think uh, Ralph Randwick comes across as a really interesting character. I don't know what he's like in the training field, but he seems fairly experienced. Um, it's, hard, it's hard to know. Like, Would you give him a go and see how it goes for the next two years? And he... He puts down the foundations and then goes up uh, above the next manager. If that doesn't happen, I, li- I always like Pochettino. He likes investing into young players. He plays a high-energy game. He can be ruthless at times, which we want. Um, but um, he'd like the job. So it's it's t- it's tough job. Like it's a tough job. It's such a big club. Like like if you any sense of failure, like it just gets accelerated. Like you know through social media, but. Um, We'll be back, but when I can't answer that question. <laughs> I think whoever comes in absolutely agree has a big job on their hands. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. So let's see what happens. No, it's been a pleasure. It was great to meet you. I wish you every success with your business in the future. Thanks very much for having me, and I love the podcast. Thanks very Cheers. much. You're very kind. You're a gent. No bother. All the best. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Red Devil Talk. We hope you enjoyed our latest episode and don't forget you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Red Devil Talk. If you listen on an Apple device, please consider leaving a review and a five-star rating. If you have any questions or comments or want more information on Red Devil Talk podcasts, you can get in touch via email at reddevil talkmedia at gmail.com.